Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to be talking about um, a lot of stuff that's in the chapter in the book. Um, and this work has been done with my colleague Lucy Hunter Blackburn. And I think it's worth stating right at the start that certainly Scotland likes to see itself as very progressive and much more egalitarian than England in relation to higher education and in relation to all things education. And in fact, maybe most things in general. But, however, I'm one of those awkward people who, I mean, having, you know, certainly agree that this should be the aspiration, but we always need to ask questions about to what extent is this actually the case? Where's the evidence? Because um, there's a very great danger, I suppose, of complacency if you see yourself as the best small country in the world, um, which was one of the Scottish Government's tourist um, slogans fairly recently. Uh, it, it's very easy to be complacent about where you are and to paint everything in England as being massively worse than everything in Scotland. And I think some of the things that I'm going to um, talk about are certainly raising some of those questions. Now, of course, a lot of the claims about higher education rests on the fact that Scotland does not charge people tuition fees. So it claims to have a free higher education system and kind of conveniently ignores the fact that, of course, people do have to take out maintenance loans. Um, certainly if you come from a poorer social class background. So the students who are the richest after graduation, the best off after graduation in the whole of the UK are Scottish students from rich backgrounds because their parents bankroll their maintenance costs. They haven't got tuition fees, so they are absolutely laughing. But of course the poorest students end up with the highest amounts of debt and particularly, as I'm going to show, students who go to college, who if they want to go onto an ancient or a post-92 or a pre-92 university, often have to start at the beginning of the, the degree, particularly pre-92 and ancient. So you can end up with six years of maintenance loan costs, whereas your more affluent peers have gone straight to a more prestigious university and end up with no debt at all. So, this is one of the things, it's a fairly typical statement from um, a Scottish minister. Um, a child born today in one of our most deprived communities should have no less of a chance of entering higher education than a child born in one of our least deprived. We want every child, whatever their background, to have an equal chance of attending university. This statement was made just before the, commis the um, Commission on Widening Access started its work. This was chaired by Ruth Silver, and it came as a kind of revelation that Scotland wasn't actually entirely equal, that of course if you came from a rich background in Scotland, you were massively advantaged in terms of getting into higher education. And this was kind of quite uncomfortable, I think. Uh, it is quite interesting that the Scottish Government hadn't realised this up until now. They thought that free tuition did the job, free tuition no problem, and of course that ignored the fact that having free tuition means that the government caps numbers, fixes the numbers that can get into university, so that the colleges um, have had to mop up 
you know, the students who want to have higher education but can't get a place in the university. Because of free tuition, it's actually, I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you, harder to get into university in Scotland than it is in England, which again is something that people don't always realise. Um, so the articulation pathway, as Jim has already explained, is enormously important in Scotland. Um, and this view, this was reinforced by the findings of the Commission on Widening Access. So articulation pathways defined as progression from college to university um, where full credit is awarded for prior learning is a distinctive and much admired feature of Scottish post-16 education. In our interim report, we identified the expansion of articulation pathways as a real success story of Scottish higher education and the powerful means of advancing access. Um, so this is really saying that Scotland has done very, very well in this regard. It doesn't actually really think about the possible downsides of this and that this path should continue and even expand. Um, as Jim said, 20% uh, of all higher education in Scotland, at least, is in colleges, compared with 8% in England. Um, so, the focus of the presentation today is to look at the role of Scottish colleges in widening access to HE generally, and for less advantaged groups specifically. Um, comparisons are made between Scotland and England, particularly uh, looking at higher education initial participation rates, HEIPR. And this research was funded by the Sutton Trust. Our report came out in 2016. And again, it actually caused a bit of a stir. It was a small um, amount of money we were given, but it seemed to cause a disproportionate stir because people hadn't realised that in some regards, um, higher education in Scotland was less equal than in England. So, HEIPR. Um, looking at data from the UK government and Scottish government, um, HEIPR refers to the sum of the entry rate at each age up to 30, 17 to 30 in Scotland and 18 to 30 in England. It looks at all providers of higher education and it looks at initial entrance on HE courses at any level both full-time and part-time, lasting at, si at least six months, but you don't have to complete the course, actually. Um, and it excludes re-entrants who've already been counted in previous years. And um, this shows the HEIPR for England up until 2013-14. I don't think that the data has changed massively since then. So it's about 47 percent um, looking at all types of provision and it's interesting that as I say if you just look at HEIs in Scotland you see that um, the HEIPR is 32 percent up to the age of 30. Um, so given that most of HE provision takes place in England in HEIs rather than in colleges. You can see that um, England is doing better in getting 
more people into universities, into HEIs, and has a bigger HE sector, generally HEI sector. In Scotland, the post-92 sector is actually much smaller than the post-92 sector in England. Scotland has deliberately not expanded the post-92 sector to the same extent. Um, this adds in um, the proportion of students, of Scottish domiciled students who go to study in England and it's quite interesting that in our UK that would include of course Cardiff universities and places like that but most of them go to the prestigious universities like Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial <coughs> etc. And you can see that it's a pretty small percentage because there's a financial penalty attached um, because you, as soon as you leave Scotland, you take on the tuition fee debt, which you don't have to pay if you stay in Scotland. And these students are spectacularly socially advantaged. They're almost all from independent schools. Um, and a higher proportion of English students come to study in Scotland than flows the other way for obvious reasons. Then we add in um, Scottish further education colleges. So as we said already, 20.9% of all HE in Scotland is taking place in colleges. And it's quite interesting because when the HEI, uh, the higher education participation rate, is quoted for Scotland, people think that everybody is in university, whereas of course this is not the case and it's often not explained to people. So when we actually add in the colleges in Scotland into the whole HEIPR and add the whole thing together, you see that the higher education participation rate is actually higher in Scotland, 55%, compared with 47% in England. And that is the figure that the Scottish Government always quotes, because it, of course it reinforces the argument that Scotland is much better than England. But it never says, but of course 20% of these students are not in universities. It leaves people to assume that they are. And I think it's quite important to look at who is going into which type of higher education because as we've said both in relation to England and other countries we find very big social disparities. Um, Scottish government generally in its official reporting of statistics uses SIMD, the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, um, to compare different deprivation quintiles or deciles or whatever. This is a neighbourhood measure, so a number of measures go in to attributing um, a particular score to a neighbourhood. So it's important to remember that these are not individual level measures, they are neighbourhood measures. And we actually know that 50% of poor people don't live in SIMD 20. That's quite important. So there are many critics actually of the um, use of SIMD because it can be, um, it can lead to some mistaken assumptions and it certainly means that if you happen to come from a poor background but you live in a richer neighbourhood you don't get any of the kind of advantages in terms of possibly lower admissions um, into college, into university. So when we compare um, the 
SIND 20, the most deprived with the least deprived areas, um, and look at who's going to Scottish HEIs um, and HEIs in the rest of the UK, um, the point is made that I've made already that um, it's the most advantaged who are actually crossing the border. That's one point to draw from that. But the second point is that you've got much higher participation rate in HEs in Scotland, 47% um, um, from the uh, least deprived compared with 15.916% from the most deprived. Um, when we look at Scottish further education colleges, of course, we find completely the reverse. I mean, we've got much lower HE participation between the most and least deprived anyway, but we find that the ones from the most deprived areas are much more likely to go into colleges than into universities. It's the opposite, it's, it's the inverse relationship. I was actually quite surprised that um, so many from richer backgrounds, from the, the least deprived areas, are actually going in to college because you kind of imagine that the schools are not going to be encouraging people to move in that direction. But uh, it's quite clear that you get exactly the opposite pattern established there. That does raise lots of questions because in the Commission on Widening Access, the Scottish Government did go in for target setting. It said that um, from a certain number of years in the future, and there was a bit of long grass target setting here, um, that at least 20% of people in HE had to come from the most deprived areas. In other words, it was saying to have equality and fairness, we're defining this as 20% uh, participation from each of the SIMD quintiles. But what it didn't say anything about was whether this applied to all institutions or whether the colleges could do, again, the work, the heavy lifting work of the widening access and the universities could carry on, particularly the ancient universities, being pretty elite, pretty elite in terms of who they admit. I mean, just to make this point again, the independent schools that had really not discussed in Scotland very much at all. So 23% of entrants to ancient universities in Scotland come from the independent school sector that caters for 5% of the population. And Glasgow is the most inclusive of the ancient universities. If you take Glasgow out, then the other ancient universities, about 40% of their intake are coming from the independent school sector. Um, which is, of course, hugely unjust, but it's never discussed in Scotland because people from the private schools may well have Scottish accents and pass as ordinary Scottish students. So people at Edinburgh University, for example, complain all the time about posh people from English private schools, completely ignoring the fact that many of the posh people are actually from Scottish private schools, but they're invisible. And this is interesting in terms of a country not being very, a very well able to see its own patterns of privilege and disadvantage. Okay, so when we look at the HEI participation rate 
um, in Scotland then um, from the most and the least deprived areas, we are finding these huge differences. So in the least deprived area, we are up at 67%, approaching the 70% that Simon Marginson was talking about, but it's much lower in the um, more deprived, the most deprived areas. So the implications of expanding HE in the college sector, what are these? Um, it's quite clear that Scotland's doing so well in terms of HEIPR because of the big contribution made by colleges. In fact, um, we calculated that 90% of the overall growth in HEIPR for the most disadvantaged in Scotland was due to increased entry into college-level higher education. So when we're talking about doing the heavy lifting, you can see that figure is very, very clear about how much the colleges are doing compared with the universities. Um, I actually think that it is a real problem if, I mean, I think it's fantastic that colleges are doing this work in Scotland, but it's only fair if we get, I think, equal participation in all types of university, um, all types of higher education from across the social spectrum. So. I think the Scottish Government targets should really be that 20% of the least deprived should be in Edinburgh, St Andrews, etc. And that 20% of the most advantaged should be in Scottish colleges, that it should be equalised in that way, if we're going to have targets at all. Um, but certainly that's not being pushed by anybody, I don't think. Of course, we must recognise the advantages that colleges offer, and Jim and colleagues have done some work on this, offering familiar environment, environments in home communities. But why do we always think that it's the most disadvantaged that need these familiar environments in home communities? I mean, we hear a lot about mental health difficulties from students from advantaged neighbourhoods going long distances um, to fairly anonymous institutions. It's never suggested for them that they would be better off in a familiar local environment. And of course, in Scotland, college has been massively cheaper for government. Uh, that is, I think, a very strong reason why it has been, um, why it's been used so extensively. I mean, colleges obviously don't have a research mission. Uh, people who teach in colleges uh, sometimes have PhDs, but it's not expected that they have PhDs. Um, so, as we've all kind of tiptoed around this issue, it is quite difficult. We don't want to say that college HE is inferior, but on the other hand, we honestly have to recognise the differences that people who go particular to the old universities expect research-led teaching. They expect, expect to be taught by people who are creating knowledge. So why shouldn't people who go to college also have that? I think those are important questions. It's quite interesting that whilst it's done this big expansion of college HE, the Scottish Government hasn't looked at all at the relative earnings of graduates from colleges and universities. The LEO data are, I think, fairly soon going to be extended to Scotland, uh, but at the moment we just don't have that data, so we don't know. But we can certainly be fairly sure that 
people who do social care, for example, at colleges, are not going to earn very much compared with people who do law or medicine at the ancient universities. Indeed, people who go to colleges, unless they take on a six-year honours degree, can't get anywhere near law and medicine. And that, to me, is a major issue as well, because they're only taught in the ancient universities. And you don't get to an ancient university if you've done an HNC or an HND, generally, um, through that articulation route. And of course, I won't talk about this, but as Anne-Marie has said, the evidence is there for England that um, you, you don't earn as much if you graduate with a college degree. This is only six months after graduation, and Leo, of course, allows you to look much further into the future. I mean, it's really lifetime earnings that are probably much more important. Um, so I'll move on from that fairly quickly. So HN level qualifications, I think it's reasonable to assume on the whole, bring lower earning gains. I mean, again, the Augur report doing selective data use if they're only comparing one particular little group. We have to be really careful about doing that. That's not good social science anyway, I would suggest. Um, they're actually excluded from the most socially prestigious um, professions, which I think is a problem. Um, and around 50% of those who do HNC, HND in Scotland don't progress at all. They stick with that qualification. Um, there is, of course, much more, as I've said, limited subject choice and institutional choice. And also, when you think about it, we're putting more and more resource into the social welfare of students at universities, the most advantaged students. Um, you know, counselling is expanding, welfare roles are expanding, but we're expecting those from the least advantaged backgrounds to make this often disruptive move in the middle of a four-year degree without asking any questions about what that's going to feel like for them to suddenly have to switch institutions. If you suggested to somebody from a private school that they were going to have to shift institutions halfway through their course and reform all their social relationships, um, etc., I think people would be horrified and parents would absolutely be up in arms. But because it's poorer people who should be grateful to be there, we don't, I think, ask those sorts of questions. And the evidence does suggest, in fact, that the students who make the move for the last two years of a degree find the shift very, very disruptive, particularly in terms of what the university demands in terms of learning styles. Uh, I mean, even writing full assignments can be a major challenge for people who've done HNCs and HNDs when they've had to demonstrate learning outcomes and so on. It can be a completely different style of learning with very high attrition rates. Um, so, there is clearly a need for tighter articulation between colleges and universities, and there are open questions about how this is to be achieved. Um, the Commission on Widening Access in Scotland was disapproving of the older institutions for not encouraging articulation, but I don't think there's been massive progress. There's been a few little tokenistic efforts 
but not major changes. Because the older universities can fill their places many times over with enormously well-qualified students. So why bother to take students who are from poorer backgrounds, who they know have a higher risk of dropping out and they're going to need more support? Um, but it does beg the question about whether there should be an automatic right to move into uh, an older university having done an HNC, HND. Certainly not the case at the moment because it's the universities who control their admissions policies. Um, should it be clearer signposting to students? And again, Jim, I think you've suggested this. Much clearer signposting to students about which are the college courses that can be seen as the first two years of a university degree. When you think about all the UCAS help that students going to university get compared with the type of support that students trying to navigate this route between college and university. Again, it's completely different. Uh, and you can see the impact of social capital in terms of how things work. If it were the other way around, the system would look completely different. Again, the question, should colleges be empowered to offer full degree programmes? If we were looking at it from the point of view of the student who's already done two years in a particular place, that might actually be better. Um, I'm not quite sure, Jim, maybe that's something we want to re return to. The arguments against that, uh, the Scottish Government might be quite keen because they'd be cheaper degrees, actually. Um, anyway, that, that again is, is a question. Um, and the whole thing that we, I, we keep on coming back to, that it's the students from less advantaged backgrounds are far more likely to go to college than university. Um, one of the things that we know very, very little about is we always talk about choice. We assume that students are making choices in all this. Um, Anne-Marie, Kevin and Holly and I are hoping fairly soon to submit a, an ESRC proposal which is going to be really focusing on um, students' choices, in heavily inverted commas, because we know that all choices are socially structured, to some extent at least. Um, how is it? What is the route? And then we want to know far more about their experiences once we get there. I mean, Jim's done a little bit of work on this, but it's really not a very, very well-researched area. The, the literature is really quite sparse. And I'm going to stop at that point. But anyway, thank you for any comments or questions. Okay.